I'm Mark Middleton with Bill Schaefer, and we've got a question for you today, folks. How do you react to challenges if you look them right in the eye, face them head on, and are willing to fight to make the best of any situation? Then congratulations, you have made the cut, and you are part of Team GB, and you're about to hear from others who come from all walks of life. Today, from a big-time rock star, Jethro Tull's Ian Anderson to one of the world's top adventure racers to a 97-year-old civil rights pioneer who is still going strong. Each have faced huge obstacles along the way, yet each have found a way not just to overcome them, but to live rich, vibrant, fulfilling lives, and even better, to make a positive, lasting impact on more people than they ever dreamed possible. The best part of this is you can do it, too, because it's never too late. And that's what we mean when we say that this is Growing Bolder. So you ride sails over the fields And you make all your animals As a brick. Boy, if you like rock music, you are no doubt familiar with Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, Tommy from The Who, or the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's, all some of the greatest concept albums ever. But there is one other that certainly stands out. Jethro Tull released it 40 years ago, Thick as a Brick. Unique for several reasons. Number one, it was written kind of as a spoof. And number two, the whole album is just one very long song. And three, this is probably the most important, it was one of the only ones ever to shoot to number one on the charts. And well, if you didn't happen to catch Toll on tour in 1972, you missed it altogether because they never performed the whole thing live after that until now. Great story, Mark. And here we are 40 years later, and not only is Ian Anderson on tour performing Thick as a Brick in its entirety, he's even written a sequel and is performing that right after the original in one fantastic show. Let's say hi to the man, the myth, and the codpiece himself. Mm. Ian Anderson, how are you, Ian? I'm very well indeed. Nice of you to call me, or well, for me to call you, whatever it is. I'm, we're here. We're f- thrilled to have you on the program, and this really looks like a grueling tour for you. The show is two hours long. There's not a moment when you're not playing the guitar, the flute, or singing, and that's a lot for a young fellow like you. <laughs> Well, I think the best uh, the best approach to all of that is to is to keep doing it. You know, if you fall off the bicycle, it's that much harder to get back on it again. So I tend to work on the assumption that if I do at least a hundred shows a year, then I'm reasonably in good shape and reasonably um, familiar with the music, focused and um, physically able. So I think the the plan is keep doing it until. Uh, until probably rather suddenly it'll come to a startling and horrible end. But between now and then, whether that's uh, two years ahead, ten years ahead, or whenever it might be, I shall try to keep up the the pressure. I think I think it's important to not just sit back and relax and go fishing. What's uh, the main difference between life on the road these days, Ian, and life on the road back in the 60s and the 70s? Uh, is it just bedtime or more than that? Well, it's not really changed a great deal in terms of the working schedule because I'm a, I'm an early guy. I'm always awake around seven a.m. and you know I tend to go to sleep as soon as I get back to my hotel room, and uh, that that's been the case since I was in my early twenties. I'm just not one of those people who likes to go and party or hang out. Um, I, I'm I'm just a solitary person. I, I like my privacy, so that that remains the same. But you know, in other ways, in which I think. Traveling was a lot more stressful in the in the seventies. There were a lot of things that made it, I think, just more arduous. And these days, we've all got better at it. I think, with the benefits of the internet, we can we can check in online, we can book our bags in, we get everything done. We have rental cars waiting for us, or buses available. Whatever you know, it's just just a kind of a better organized and slicker operation. So it takes a lot of the stress out of touring that made it a lot more difficult back in the 70s and 80s. Dare I say, in those days when we had, like most uh, sheep-like musicians still do, tour managers. <laughs> you know, scourge of the earth tour managers. They just make, make, make work for themselves by making things more complicated than they have to be. So 
it's my little hobby on my uh, days off is doing tour itineraries and tour budgets and organizing flights and hotels and all that stuff it's kind of fun it's a bit of a bit of a diversion from the uh, otherwise rather boring aspects of travel and and keeps my brain operating in another sphere apart from musically well you sure make it sound glamorous <laughs> well, it's 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 actually quite a, it's a it's a bit like another day in the office, except these days the office goes on tour because we're all sitting there with our laptop computers and hooked up to the internet. So, yeah, the the office the office travels with us these days. Yeah, I was totally drawn to you, Ian. When uh, you know, in the seventies, when others were writing "I Love You" songs, uh, Jethro Tull was always known for for some really, really interesting lyrics and 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 look uh, looks upon religion and life and things like that. At this stage of your life, now that we've got all this wisdom that we've acquired, isn't this the time when great writers should be, you know, creating some of their greatest hits? Do you still write, and do you still feel you have things to say? The um. Well, the models, I think, for um, creative work in older age surely have to be Beethoven. He he managed to get well into his 50s before he wrote his uh, culmination, the Ninth Symphony. Um, and lots of people who are you know, performing musicians, they, they get to go on pretty late in life, too. The, some of the great jazz musicians, folk musicians, blues musicians who carry on well into their 80s or even once in a blue moon into their 90s, like John Lee Hooker. So, yeah, you can keep going if you're a musician. If, on the other hand, you're a Formula One racing driver or a tournament tennis player, then life has come to a horrible, staggering end, probably around your early 30s. And uh, we don't have to do that. You know, we can still be productive and creative as long as we feel that those creative juices run. And um, if in any doubt, tackle a big project and see what happens, which is why... A few months ago, I started work on the Thick as a Brick uh, 2, Tab 2, the 40-year-later sequel to Thick as a Brick. So I just wanted to see if I could do that kind of a big conceptual project and then obviously take it to the live performance stage, doing it on tour as well. So it's a welcome change from just writing you know, three-minute songs or doing best-of-Jethro Tull tours, you know, just the usual um, selection of repertoire. This is a more of a project thing, more more musical theatre, and one that I think uh, was a good exercise for me to tackle in my mid-60s before it gets too late. And isn't it great, Ian, that, that, that really you gave yourself a gift 40 years ago? Did you have any idea that 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 thick as a brick when you created it would still be something that intrigued you, that motivated you, that challenged you, that gave you purpose today? I think at the time of writing it, being being the follow-up to the Aqualung album, which was widely reviewed as being a concept album, although I maintained then and to this day that it wasn't, just a collection of songs. But when it came to thick as a brick, we, we went off um, in the uh, in the more... Uh, parody kind of direction of concept albums. I say we. I mean, it was really me. The other guys in the band were, you know, obviously very important in terms of the recording of the album, but I don't think they had much idea of what it was we were doing until they heard the finished record and took it home and played it on their record players. Up until that moment, they probably only had a vague inclination of where we were headed because I was writing the music, writing the arrangements. We were rehearsing it sometimes without all the lyrics there, so they wouldn't have had a complete picture of the song until we'd really finished it. So it was a a leap of faith, particularly on the part of the other band members, that that I would come up with something that was a little bit uh, challenging, a little bit different, had elements of humor, elements of... of, pathos, tragedy, aggression. It was a you know great mixture of human emotions all seen through the eyes of a you know eight, nine year old boy. And that was um something that I think was was a big a big challenge, not only to us musicians, but to the audiences who heard it. And I think a lot of folks just uh, maybe felt we'd bitten off more than we could chew, particularly when it came to playing it live. And they were right, because <laughs> it was a very difficult album to play live on stage and a very difficult album to convey live on stage because it had a lot of acoustic music. And at that particular point in late 1972, audiences were expecting to hear rock and roll and uh, you know loud electronic riffs from loud guitars and Hammond organs and things. And, of course, Thick as a Brick had a lot of acoustic stuff, making it a little bit more of a challenge for the audience, too. These days, I think it's a lot a lot, a lot easier a ride to present that. And um, so far, 
any little concerns that I might have had that audiences would would find it a little too much to uh, to uh, cope with has, have been proved um, you know n- not not to be of concern at all. It's just been it's been great. The, the audiences sit quietly and listen to the whole thing and applaud wildly at the end and go go <laughs> off into the night. Probably rather relieved that the two hours is, is uh, now over. But um, yeah, it's it's been great, and um, I think now's the time to do this. Seventy two. I think it was asking a bit too much of a of a rock audience to do something as detailed and complex. Well, Ian, here you are. You mentioned that you are in your mid sixties now, and uh, you're still doing what it is you love, and you're attracting new audience members, people that have never heard this album before, now coming to it because you're doing it. Uh, what what is it? What is your message? What is it that you want to say to people that continue to to be enthralled by you and continue to be inspired by what Ian Anderson has to say? Well, I'm sure as you get older, part of the message is, come on, you know, you can do this too. If I can, if I can run around the stage, age 65, and do all this stuff, then 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 so can you. It's uh, it's not just about the physicality; it's about the mental engagement. I think really it's a way of reminding people as they get older that they should they shouldn't just you know wait for uh, that sort of retirement kind of slow death. <laughs> it's time to down to get get going you know get 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 motivated do some new things start a new a new uh, hobby a new activity even a, maybe a new career it's a, it's a, you know we don't have to do the things our parents did we don't have to lie down and go to sleep just because we're old folks you know we have the internet we have sports we have activities we have each other in a way that we didn't have before this huge age of of uh, media communication that we live in now so we don't have any excuses for for giving up early. I think we can all look forward to a profitable 10, 20, 30 years of life beyond that sort of normal retirement age. And that's a bit of the message I hope I bring to people. The other message is is contained in the words and music and is hopefully a little more subtle. So pull the record out, thick as a brick, folks. You probably haven't listened to it in a while. You won't regret it. And make sure, make sure you go see Ian Anderson perform it live because you may never have this chance again. So check tour dates, buy some music, or learn more at iananderson.com or j-tull.com as well. Always great to catch up with the inspiring, the fun, and the musically brilliant Ian Anderson. In a moment, how old radios, tubes, and transformers actually transformed a life. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Located in West Orange County, Orlando Health's Health Central Hospital is a full-service hospital with an accredited chest pain center and heart failure program, as well as top-rated neurospine and orthopedic programs. Learn more at orlandohealth.com. And by... The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. My guards did hard when abstract threats to noble Welcome back, everybody. Mark Middleton and Bill Schaefer here, and this is Growing Boulder. Do you ever have a hobby or an interest you always wanted to do but just wish there was a way that you could kind of find a way to do it for a living? Well, that happens with a lot of artists or actors who have to squeeze what they love into their free time. Well, you're about to hear about a man who had a very unusual interest, not an artist or actor, but a guy who happened to love old-time Radios. Now, the big difference with him is that he decided to take that big risk and a huge leap and turn his hobby into a way to make a living. What he learned can apply to us all. When you have a passion, a true passion in life, things can work out for the best when you follow it. Well, let's see if we can tune that in right now. Presenting Orson Welles as the third man. Way back before iPods, the Internet, and even TV, these were the most popular shows of their time. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. 
To hear them, the entire family would gather in front of one of these. The centerpiece of every home was the radio. I said your money or your life. I'm thinking it over. The shows are long gone, but the instruments used to listen to them survive as collectibles, echoes of the past. Dennis Williams is one of maybe a dozen artisans in the country Nice little wooden radio. who work full-time to repair and preserve them. But I have collectors all over the country that do not do any work. They love their radios, but they don't know what makes them work. So bubble wrap it and send it to me. His shop is cluttered with pieces used to bring them back to life. Capacitors, transformers, tubes. But it's not just radios he's preserving. You ever go into an old, old building and just sense the time in it and things that happened years and years and years ago? Well, it's the same thing here. Somebody listened to uh, FDR fireside chats on this radio. It's just the right age. Time is something he wishes he could have had more of with his parents. Dennis's mother died in a car wreck when he was a baby. His father was killed in an industrial accident when he was only 12. Traumatized, Dennis spent countless lonely hours in his room with his one link to the world. It's not the very radio, but it's the exact same model and color. Um, that was uh, on a little table next to my bed when I was a baby. Uh, my grandmother uh, took care of me for a long time after my mother died. I was 11 months old. And I remember that radio. Always wanted to find another one. So I ran across this one and I snatched it up in a, in a second. Still, it was a car wreck of his own and a near-death experience that changed everything. I thought I was dead. It was one of those slow motion windows breaking, glass flying through the car, and the car was going smaller and smaller and smaller. (laughs) So that that kind of freaked me out. So I decided right then and there that, uh, you know, I'm gonna do something else with the rest of my life. So I did. It's been three decades since Radio Relics was born, and in that time, he's become sort of a folk hero to vintage radio collectors everywhere. I'm all over the United States. People come to me for advice, parts, service, whatever. I bet that's pretty rewarding. It is. He loves what he does, despite the drawbacks. But look, you're alone every day. No, I'm not. You and the radios. I got a cat. (laughs) I like being alone with the radios. I know it needs help and I just get into it and say, I'm going to make this thing work. And I lose track of time. I lose track of other thoughts. Um, I'm just, just completely get tied up in, the, in restoring the radio. And it's not necessarily a great way to make money. Do you worry about next month's rent? Oh, yeah. Sometimes I do that. I do that, but something always comes in. I was really worried when the economy went the way it did, and I was thinking to myself, Dennis... You might be in trouble, because who's going to fix these old, you know, who wants to spend the money to fix these old radios? But they kept doing it. I believe the collectors and the people that really love these things, they're going to keep getting them fixed and keep them because they enjoy it. It gives them pleasure, and they're going to spend their money on that before buying a new car. Here's one that just came in today. This is a Zenith Transoceanic. One of the most well-known radios around. Some need a complete overhaul, which can cost several hundred dollars. Others need just a little TLC, which can run as low as 35. All the tubes are there. It seems to be intact. Hmm. Might be an easy job. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century... This world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. He doesn't mind the work because his work may survive for generations. Another hundred years, there's still going to be old radios around because they'll last that long. And your digital watch, 
the clock radio by your bed won't. All in all, it's not glamorous. Little kids don't grow up wanting to be... A radio repairman. <laughs> but you like who you are. Yeah. I like what I do. So, I could have a lot more money, but I couldn't be, I couldn't be a lot happier. I don't intend to do anything else. This is it. I'm gonna probably drop dead over there on my workbench with a soldering gun in my hand. <laughs> and that'd be okay. That'd be okay. Now, what a great attitude there. And I don't have to tell you, there are no colleges or universities that teach antique radio repair, and no career counselor would ever recommend you do it. But Dennis Williams found his passion. He created a niche for himself, and he couldn't be happier about it. And he makes a great point, Bill, too, when he says that, sure, he wishes he could make more money, and sometimes it has been a real source of stress for him. But he is filling a need that few others can. He's a truly unique person, and he's living a life that he has absolutely loves. And who doesn't know someone who has one of those old-time radios just sitting around? If you want to get it to work, there's really only one guy to call, folks, Dennis Williams. Check him out on the internet at radiorelics.com and tell him that you're growing bolder, too. Hi, I'm Gary McKechnie, a former ad copywriter who decided to start growing bolder. Now I'm a best-selling, award-winning author, humorist, and America's backroads travel expert. My mom had passed away in 1989 and I was just drifting and couldn't nail down what I wanted to do. About eight months later on New Year's Eve, as a matter of fact, a friend who I felt was very successful, he got the full force of my wrath. I just laid into this guy about all of the things he had accomplished. So he asked me what I wanted to do and I rattled off a few things. I said, oh, I want to write a movie, be on Saturday Night Live, I want to get a PhD. And then he said, well, what have I done to accomplish any of that? I hadn't done anything, actually. And so my excuse was I wanted to do so many things, I never moved forward on anything. So we said, look, if you had a million dollars in the bank and woke up tomorrow, you didn't have to worry about work or having a career, what would you do? And all of a sudden, I was able to take money and ambition out of the equation. I said, I would travel and I would write. He said, that was it. That was my passion. Aside from any other consideration, that's what I really wanted to do. And he was right. I did. I, I became a travel writer. I was writing articles. I wrote the best-selling motorcycle guidebook in America. I've written two books for National Geographic, and I leveraged that to speak on ships, the Cunard's Queen Mary II and Queen Victoria and on the Seaborne Sojourn. And that was a great lesson. If you can determine what you really want to do, everything else is just noise. Author and travel expert Gary McKechnie with some great advice there on how to find your passion. In a moment, how to eat healthy and still have fun with it from registered dietitian Susan Mitchell. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being. Coming soon in Winter Park. Wellness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location. Offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Hi, Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer, and you are listening to Growing Boulder. Of course, you've heard our guest week after week talk about how they changed their lives to make them better than they ever were before. And one question Bill and I get all the time is, how and where do I start? What do I first do to start growing bolder? And in many cases, the first step is to improve your energy level, your conditioning, your health. And the way to do that is with some straight talk about eating smart. Ooh, excellent, Mark. You've seen her on the Today Show, CNN, and the Food Network. Here is Dr. Susan Mitchell. Hey, Doc, how are you? Hey, guys. I'm fine. How are you guys today? Uh, always great to talk about our Hungry. favorite subject. <laughs> That's right. My favorite subject is always food. Oh, my God. And, you know, it, it's great to 
to talk about it, even if uh, even if we can't make changes, if we keep hearing about it enough, eventually we will. And that's what we love about you, because you always talk about how much you love food. You even call yourself a foodie, which makes you really easy to relate to, because you get it. You understand that there's also an emotional aspect of eating. And isn't understanding the key to making changes that'll last? Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, you you have to look so much at yourself when you're trying to make changes. It's more than just about the food itself. It's so much about what's going on inside and, and what's happening in your emotional state and the stress in your life and your hormones. And, you know, all of that plays a part in what you eat, but it also plays a big part in weight as well. You know, Susan, I think the good news is that more and more of us are anxious to eat better. The bad news is there are so many reasons to just give up. Case in point, a week almost doesn't go by anymore without turning on the news to hear about another big food call. And many times it's foods that people tell us to eat. Spinach, cantaloupe, energy bars have been recalled lately. What's going on here? How do we make certain that what we eat is safe? You know, I, I haven't seen this number of food recalls in a long time, and it's it's on everything. First of all, it's on products that contain bacteria, and other times it's on products that contain something they should not. So a nut allergy, for example, nuts in a product that shouldn't be there. So what I tell people, how do you know when there's a recall? It's very easy. You can go to fda.gov, fda.gov, and and when you pull up their homepage, you will see a section right in the center that says recalls and alerts, and all you have to do is sign up for their email. And then any time there's an alert, like let's just say cantaloupes have been recalled, and they were recently, uh, so you will then receive an email yourself saying, you know what, here's what the recall is, here's the part of country that it affects, here's the product, and then if they go so far as to have a product number or uh, that tells you the code on the product, they will put that as well. So you're quickly able to say, hey, this one doesn't affect me, oh, but this one does. Susan, we all have habits that we wish we could change, but the food habit, man, that's the hardest one to break of all. We we all need a little help getting started, and I guess that's why the diet pill business is absolutely booming, and everybody's talking about this new drug that the FDA has approved, the first weight loss drug in years. What's your take on that? Well, you know, I have really mixed emotions, and I'll tell you, they, they've approved two just recently. One is called Belvique, and the other one is called... Um, quisimia. And they're both very different. One of them, uh, quisimia, is, uh, p- pairs an old drug, fentermine, which was part of the original fin-fin drug, if you remember, mm-hmm. some time back. And then it puts it with one called Topamax, which is actually an epilepsy drug. And the other one is a a drug that works on the brain. Now, here's the problem with these. These are not pills that are for somebody that says, you know what, I need to drop um, 15 pounds because I'm going to my reunion. These are for people, and they have very strict protocols for the obese adult who has a BMI, a body mass index, that's 30 or greater, or 27 or greater, along with another health issue. And by health issue, it has to be something like type 2 diabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure. So in other words, these are not just to be handed out just because I want to drop a few. It doesn't work that way. The side effects are so significant that what I tell people is you really got to have this discussion with your doctor and say, is this right for me? Because they're also not supposed to be given unless they're done with exercise and diet. So it's part of an entire protocol. We are speaking with nutritionist and registered dietitian, Dr. Susan Mitchell. We throw her questions. She gives us answers. Uh, Susan, sugar substitutes confound me because I, 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 I need a sweetener. I look for something that's, you know, that's the best on the market. The newest thing out there is something made from monk fruit. What the heck is that? I know. And you're going to hear more and more about this. Monk fruit is actually a little small green melon. And according to legend, it was named after these Buddhist monks who first cultivated it like 800 years ago, and it's going to be uh, one of the newest alternatives to sugar that you're going to see, and they actually use the monk fruit extract, and you'll find it now in no-calorie sweeteners. Uh, There's several new ones on the market. You're going to see it, and it already is being used in food products from, oh gosh, like energy bars and cereals and things like this, and the reason why is that it's like 150 times sweeter than sugar sugar. And because of that sweetness, it allows them to use so much less. Mm. 
You know, they say uh, you are what you eat, and I guess you eat the way you shop. And, you know, one of the mantras that we've heard is shop the perimeter Mm -hmm. because that's where the fresh fruits and vegetables are. But you say that's not necessarily the case anymore. Oh, that's right. You know, that was like the old school way of grocery shopping because people would say, well, whatever is healthy is on the outside. But now stores really vary. Grocery stores are totally different. You might go in one and it's set up one way and another. It's another way. But for most stores, all kinds of healthy items are integrated into each and every single aisle. And the problem is, as soon as the food manufacturers hear us saying that we're going to shop the perimeter, they probably pay extra to put their crap on the outside. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Then they're going to move the food around anyway. And I like to, you know, I think you just have to go through the stores and look. There's so many new products out now. And Another thing, products constantly change. What you see on the stores also change very often depending on how well they sell. So you're going to find things integrated throughout the stores. You just have to be a smart shopper and what I call label sleuth, read those labels. Common sense information from the great Dr. Susan Mitchell. Always fun, always interesting, uh, and always entertaining. We like that about you as well. Coming up, at 97, he was just presented the Congressional Gold Medal. Meet a true civil rights pioneer. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Masson Spine Institute, where world-renowned, minimally invasive techniques lead to fast recovery. The Masson Spine Institute, excellence in spinal surgery. More information at MassonSI.com. And by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. Hi, Mark Middleton with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder. We're about to meet one of the boldest men who ever lived, a man who broke barrier after barrier of racial discrimination. He was witness to Dr. Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement, and he continues to serve his community today at the age of 97. And, Mark, there's even more to this, because recently he was part of a group of African Americans invited to the nation's capital and awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. He was one of the legendary Mountford Point Marines who, during World War II, broke the color barrier, becoming the first African Americans in the Marine Corps. What an honor to speak with Dr. James Huger. Hey, Doc, how are you? I'm hanging in there. How you doing, partner? <laughs> Listen, 97 years old, you're doing more than hanging, aren't you? <laughs> the Lord has been good to me. And and you're feeling good today? Hanging in there. Hey, listen, tell us about that ceremony, the Congressional Gold Medal. How much did that mean to you? It was an out-of-sight experience. Did you get to meet the president? No, the president was out of the country. Well, he better get back into the country and shake your hand personally because you you certainly deserve that. Uh, you know, a lot Thank of you. a lot of folks don't know that the last branch of the military to finally integrate was the Marines. What was it like to want to fight for your country when your own country refused to treat you as an equal? Well, we had a chance. We had a chance to prove that we could do the job. You know, when we went into the Marines, they did not want us as black people. In fact, the first formal meeting we had that morning, the man said, we have existed 167 years without you people, and we could continue to exist without you. We do not want you. They did not want us in there, but we were able to go into the Marines and prove to them that we could do anything that anybody else could do, in many instances, do those things better than many people. And because of what you did, Dr. Huger, 25,000 African Americans ended up serving in the Marines in World War II. Only three advanced to sergeant major, and you were one of them. Well, I think there were four of us uh, that made sergeant major. I was in administration Charlie Anderson was in the administration. 
and uh, the other guys were in the field. Well, congratulations to all of you for that. And, and, and you know, you, you really had to deal with some stuff. Uh, we have been told that you were in your sergeant major uniform. You got six nice stripes on there. You're walking in Washington, D.C., and you get arrested. Is that true? Yes. There what were did, four of us. What did they? Washington for the weekend. And when we got off the flight, off the train, uh, the MP just came up and said, Marine, you are under arrest. He looked to see who the hell he was talking to. <laughs> he was talking to me. Well, I had on a Navy, I mean, my Marine blue. And uh, I said, well, what's the charge? He said, don't say anything. We told you to get to the man. So we went into the office of the day, and he said, I arrested this man. And he said, what's the charge? He said, impersonating a staff NCO. So the officer looked at me and looked at those six stripes on that blue outfit, and he said, are you kidding? And so the man said, no, sir. He said, but you checked his ID, didn't you? So he said, no, I did not, sir. I said, but I saw he was colored, had six stripes on his arm. I knew that was wrong, because no, no Negroes had six stripes in the Marine Corps. But by that time, the man looked at my papers, and they had Sergeant Major James Huger. He said, Sergeant Major, I'm sorry. I said, sir, you hear what I'm going to say to this PFC. I said, this is the first time you made this mistake, and I'm going to try to be doggone sure that you'll ever make it again. We are striped like you, anybody else. And uh, for you to say we're not supposed to be wearing this, and you got a problem. We do not have a problem. We're talking with Dr. James Huger, a true American hero, one of the first Marines, one of the first African-American Marines ever. But that's not it. Tell us about your relationship with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You met him in 1939, but you actually went to Montgomery, Alabama for his famous trial. What was what was that like working with him? Well, I met uh, Dr. King when I took leave from Bethune-Cookman to serve as the general secretary of our college fraternity. And we got Dr. King to deliver the 50th anniversary address for the fraternity. We went along generally, and then when he got arrested, my president called and said, Jimmy, Martin has just been arrested, and I want you to find some way to the world that Alpha is for him. Well, we got together, and seven of us went to Montgomery to sit with Dr. King during his trial. Now, I have said over and over again, I was born and raised in the South, had all kinds of crazy deals, listening to people call us everything but the child of God. But I was never so disappointed as I was as those white lawyers talked about Dr. King. Not one time did they ever say Dr. King or Reverend King. We knew he wouldn't say Mr. King. We knew that. But we thought he would say one or the other two. We were ready to get ready to walk out of there when one of them referred to him as that boy. Mm. Dr. King looked at us and shook his head and he said, cool it, brothers, cool it. This too shall pass. Well, Dr. Huger, this is a good spot for us to stop. We're going to have to have you on again. Your stories are tremendous, and we want to thank you for going through what you did to help us all learn and to help us all gain our senses. And and you earned respect, sir, and we have so much for you. There he is from the legendary Mountford Point Marines, a man who dedicated his life to making a difference. What an honor to talk to Dr. James Huger, 97 years old. Coming up, a world record-setting kayaker has figured out how winning works. That's next on Growing Boulder. And on and on we go. 
Support for Growing Boulder provided by the UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Hey, you're listening to Growing Boulder, although I guess you probably knew that. Along with Mark Middleton, I'm Bill Schaefer, and our next guest is an athlete, a firefighter, a mentor, and a motivational speaker. Amazing, isn't it? But she really came to prominence, Mark, as an adventure racer. Well, how did that go? Out of the 36 races she entered, she placed in 25 of them, and I think that's kind of all-star caliber, no yeah. matter how you look at it. And, you know, Bill, that alone would make her a great story. But as we all know, life has a way of throwing obstacles at all of us, and hers came in the form of a serious injury. Uh, but what we've learned is that life... Uh, it, how you handle those obstacles is what determines how you do coming forward. And she did at least two major things, folks. First, she started the Project Athena Foundation, which we'll talk about in a minute. And the second is she wrote a book that's called How Winning Works, Eight Essential Leadership Lessons from the Toughest Teams on Earth. Let's find out more about that as we say hello to Robin Benincasa. Hey, Robin, how are you? Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> Wow, I'm great. Thank you so much. That was a nice introduction. Well, other than my fumble for about five seconds, it wasn't bad. You know, at first glance, I think people are going to think that your book is is mostly about how to win adventure races. What we like about it is it's so much more than that. You share from your experiences what you've learned about leadership that, that really can transfer to almost every area of life. What did you learn? I mean, absolutely. You know, I come from adventure racing, but what is interesting about the book is that, and about life relating to the book is all of us are in our own little adventure races every single day. You know, in fact, when I talk to people like, oh, I I would never do anything like that. I'm like, all right, well, well, follow me here. Tell me if this isn't your life every single day. When I describe an adventure race, you've got small teams of men and women who are trying to make it through a seemingly endless series of checkpoints in pursuit of a nearly impossible goal against extreme time pressures and changing market conditions, and your goal is to do it better than anyone else in the industry. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) So really what we've learned from adventure racing, you know, these these nonstop six- to ten-day-long multi-sport endurance races is that it's not about being an athlete. Getting to those finish lines is about being a great team builder. And it's not the greatest athletes that get there. It's the greatest teammates that get there. And it's it's the same in, in most aspects of our lives. You know, the book, Robin, is called How Winning Works. So let me just ask you simply, how does it work? Uh, You know, it's funny. It's a little bit of a misnomer. I mean, when you think about winning, a lot of people think of winning as being something mutually exclusive. You know, for, for me to win, it entails other people losing. But really, how winning works is is your understanding that no one at the highest of high levels in whatever your your goal or your endeavor is at the highest of high levels nobody truly wins alone i mean the the key is capitalizing on your strengths and outsourcing your weaknesses to a team that you share a great mutual respect with, that you have an empathy and awareness of, and and where everybody leaves their ego at the start line and shares strengths and weaknesses collectively. That's how you win, is building a truly world-class team around you to, to whom you can outsource your weaknesses, and everyone capitalizes on their own strengths. And isn't it uh, an interesting industry, Robin, which you are now in? You thrust yourself into the middle of it with this book, uh, and and that is the leadership industry. I mean, that is very, very competitive. Uh, uh, What do you bring to the the table that maybe some of these other leadership gurus don't? I think when people talk about leadership, they're talking about just, just you as one person kind of getting out front and and showing people the way and and when i'm talking about leadership you know one of the things i talk about is kinetic leadership which is the eighth essential element of human synergy in the book 
But great leaders understand that there's a difference between management and leadership. I mean, as a manager, you are a facilitator of your team's success. You give them everything they need to be successful. But the best leaders also understand that that your job as a leader is to create more leaders and to allow different leaders to emerge based on their strengths and not keep anybody back or not take more responsibility because of your title. And, and I mean, on, on our adventure racing teams, every single person is a leader at some point and in multiple different capacities. We have one manager, but everybody's a leader, and that's what works really well. So, I mean, when I'm talking about leadership, I'm talking about leading a world-class team to a difficult finish line because as a leader, you don't necessarily – I mean, you're not just dragging all these people along with you. Your job is to create synergy, so you're not just walking side by side towards a common goal with you leading the way. You're, you're literally and figuratively carrying one another every step of the way. And, and in my opinion and contention and experience, that's what great leaders do. Now, a big part of uh, what Mark was saying your story entailed was overcoming adversity. What, what, what happened to you? Uh, well, gosh, I mean, obviously in our adventure races, there was a, a lot of it. I mean, it was basically a long, six to ten days of what's next, <laughs> what's going to happen to us next, and how can we overcome that together. And and what we learned, a lot of it is, is your attitude and being ruled in your brain by the hope of success versus the fear of failure. I mean, what's it going to take to get through this and move forward versus simply move forward on this course not losing? And if you analyze yourself, it's funny, you'd be surprised at how much of your day you go along trying to not fail versus to to truly do what it takes to succeed. And those are two completely different things. So when I discovered my, you know, kind of my personal setback about four years ago, I discovered I had stage four osteoarthritis in both of my hips. And um, in the last four years, I've had four hip replacements because um, the first two failed. And what it led me to, though, was saying to myself, okay, you know, Miss Adversity Manager, Adventure Racer, what are you going to do now? And um, the the idea just popped into my head, well, you know, obviously I'm in the phase of my life where it, you really want to give back and take the skills you've developed and, and bring other people along with you. And um, the idea for the Project Athena Foundation jumped into my head. And we help – it was originally going to be breast cancer survivors, but it, now it's just a whole span of women with, with medical or traumatic setbacks. We help them live an adventurous dream as part of their recovery. And so we, we take, for example, next month we're doing a rim-to-rim-to-rim trek across the Grand Canyon and back in two days. And it's things that people would never do alone, but, but that with a team, um, everything is possible. So it's kind of neat because you get a leadership adventure and, and a, a confidence builder and something where you get your groove back. Um, so we take three or four survivors and then a group of 25 or 30 fundraisers along as well and have this big team where we're uh, creating synergy all along the way. And the goal is to, to help people amaze and inspire themselves again. Well, it's amazing. The book, folks, is something you should read. It's called How Winning Works, Eight Essential Leadership Lessons from the Toughest Teams on Earth. Uh, the author is Robin Benincasa, who, Bill, is really a pretty good example that sometimes adversity is the crucible that, that it actually makes us stronger and leads us to even greater things than we thought possible. Yeah, one interesting thing, too, Mark, is that winning and leadership isn't category defined. If you're good at it on the athletic field or good at it in the boardroom, that transfers and it just makes you that much a better person. Robin, thanks so much for your time and good luck with your book and we will certainly be following your adventures. Yet another fascinating show. How many programs are there out there that actually offer hope and inspiration for all of us and proof that it is possible to overcome serious obstacles to do what you want to do, to be who you want to be, and to live a life that's full of adventure, excitement, and even reward? That's our mission here on Growing Boulder. We believe that every guest you hear brings along some sort of takeaway for all of us. And as bold as we like to believe we are, most of us just need a little 
little reassurance that great things are possible if we simply put in the effort. And, Bill, this last hour has been a pretty good example. I love the way you put that, Mark. And, of course, we love it when you join us right here every week. But if you want to listen to the program whenever you want, you can do that, too. Just go to growingbolder.com, click the radio tab. Also, don't forget to look for Growing Boulder TV, now airing across over 90% of the country. Find out where it is near you at growingbolder.com. Isn't it time you started Growing Boulder? Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to growing Boulder, it's not about age. It's about attitude. Oh